This is uh, page 31, unit 6, part 9, aneurysms. Um, I'm going to talk about thoracic aortic aneurysms, but the one you're going to encounter most commonly in the field, and we don't see it often, but it's an infrequent call, but will be the um, abdominal aortic aneurysm, or uh, we just call it a triple A, abdominal aortic aneurysm. So <coughs> let's talk about thoracic aortic aneurysm, thoracic aortic dissection. Let's talk specifically about dissection, because patients have aneurysms, and sometimes they're diagnosed with an aneurysm, and they'll tell you, I have a, uh, an aneurysm in my, um, my artery, and you want to ask where, and they say in my chest. That means they've got a thoracic aortic aneurysm. And the hospital, the physicians may be just monitoring it. Um, it's a dangerous area to go. Um, I think we talked about this last class, right? Um, so for surgery, they just kind of watch it. And um, uh, so aortic dissection, though the most common etiology is a history of chronic hypertension. Uh, it's the most common risk factor, or uh, risk factor, or there may be genetic defects like Marfan's syndrome. Have you heard of this? Marfan's gigantism. Like Andre the Giant? Like Andre the Giant, yeah, Marfism. So patients with Marfan syndrome um, are at higher risk of thoracic aortic dissection. And um, congenital anomalies, uh, most often it's seen in patients uh, 50 to 70. And so these are medical thoracic aortic dissections. We might see traumatic thoracic aortic dissections in acceleration deceleration injuries like crashes or falls. 50% uh, of dissections in women younger than age 40 are associated with pregnancy, usually in the third trimester, which is scary. Mm -hmm. So in terms of pathos, so there's a tear in the intimal layer and um, with blood dissecting or separating the intima, intimal from the medial layer and this causes a pseudo aneurysm. And the worry is that that dissection may rupture. If it ruptures, these patients exsanguinate in seconds, right? But um, before it ruptures, it can cause wreak havoc. And so it, we see it most commonly, or it's seen most commonly in the ascending aorta. So, um, I'll show an image here. So 60% occur approximately. And if you look at those vessels, so um, uh, up the ascending aorta, there's a brachiocephalic artery and there's a left carotid artery, and then there's a left subclavian artery. Coming off the brachiocephalic is the uh, right um, subclavian artery. And so if it dissects up the uh, brachiocephalic and into the right subclavian, you're probably gonna get a diminished blood pressure in the right arm compared with the left arm, right? This is one of the reasons why if you have someone who has tearing type chest pain, or any chest pain for that matter, we'll take a blood pressure in both arms. And um, how do we do the blood pressure in both arms? Manual or NIBP? Manual. Manual, and who does it? The same paramedic, yeah, right. Same pair of ears, same stethoscope, um, right? Because two paramedics might get two different blood pressures, different set of ears, different stethoscope, different placement of the stethoscope. So, so it, it can dissect into the brachiocephalic artery uh, and cause a decrease in blood pressure in the right arm. If it's, if it's uh, dissecting in the descending aorta, it can dissect backwards uh, into the left subclavian artery, give you a decreased blood pressure in the left arm. So you could get a decreased blood pressure in either arm. And uh, a difference in systolic blood pressure of 15 millimeters or more 
in one arm or the other isn't diagnostic of aortic dissection, but it's just um, additional evidence, right? If we have someone with tearing chest pain that radiates to the back and they've got a um, blood pressure difference of 15 millimeters mercury or higher, those things all sort of narrow the differential diagnosis towards a thoracic aortic dissection. But it's not, they're not, um, the specificity isn't high enough to make that diagnosis. They would need a chest x-ray and maybe an angiogram. And on the chest x-ray, they look for a widened aorta. They look for, you know, uh, aortic knob that fills, um, you know, it's over eight centimeters wide or fills more than half of the thoracic cavity. Um, so these can dissect in any one of a number of different directions. You can get dissection uh, into the left common carotid, carotid artery and have stroke-like symptoms, right? So these patients might present as a stroke. So a stroke isn't always just a stroke. Um, most of the time it's a stroke, but <laughs> just a stroke. But we want to find out what other signs and symptoms they have. You know, if they're telling you they have chest pain and they've got slurred speech and, you know, one side of their face is drooping and they can't move one side of their body, um, but they've got chest pain as well, then we may be looking at a really complicated stroke. Um, what else? It can also, uh, you know, if it's dissecting in the ascending aorta, it can also uh, dissect backwards into the coronary arteries. And so you could have a patient who presents with um, ST elevation, myocardial infarction, and aortic dissection. That would be the, probably the worst case scenario. If you're dissecting into your coronary arteries and up the aorta, your chances of survival are really, really low. So if you're not dead now, uh, they're probably gonna be dead soon and uh, surgical intervention for those patients. I'm not sure how successful that is, but I, do, I would imagine the outcome would be pretty bleak. So, so presentation, uh, typically uh, they present with severe chest pain, about 90% of cases, uh, or interscapular pain, so pain between the two scapula, right? Uh, typically it's sudden in onset and uh, oftentimes described as a ripping or tearing. So those words should scare the bejeebers out of you. And um, radiates to the back, very common, sometimes to the neck or jaw. And um, uh, if the pain radiates to the back and it's been migrating downwards, that has a high specificity for thoracic aortic dissection. So specificity, that's a great word. Specificity. Yeah. Yeah. Deleterious is another one of my favorite words. Um, so. Uh, so we want to find out if the pain radiates, where it radiates to, and has it changed over time. Um, you know, if they say it's lower back pain, um, has it always been lower back pain, or has that been chest pain and pain straight back, and that has it migrated its way down? Uh, they may be hypertensive, or they may be hypotensive, um, uh, particularly uh, hypotensive if there's some hemopericardium or cardiac tamponade occurs. So you can get dissection with bleeding into the pericardial sac, and that uh, compresses the heart. The sac around the heart is a really tough membranous uh, material. It's, it's um, probably analogous to a thick shower curtain. It doesn't stretch easily. So as little as 150 mLs of blood in the pericardial sac can kill you. If you accumulate blood in the pericardial sac chronically, really, really slowly, some patients will get up to two liters in the pericardial sac, but acutely, like with, if that happened, you get an accumulation of fluid within an hour, as little as 150 mLs will kill you in an adult. And um, uh, how would you know if someone, or what, what assessment would you do 
that would make you suspicious that someone has cardiac tamponade. Yeah, Eli? Auscultate the heart, yeah, yeah. So auscultate the heart. So not looking for anything sophisticated. Um, you're just auscultating at about the fourth intercostal space, left sternal border, and then you're auscultating at the apex of the heart, which is about the fifth intercostal space, midclavicular line. And you're just listening for a clear lub-dub. If you hear muffled heart sounds, that's suggestive of cardiac tamponade. Now, patients with cardiac tamponade usually present with muffled heart sounds and neck vein distension, right? Because their heart's being compressed, and if it can't uh, take blood from uh, the preload from the vena cava, that blood's going to back up into the necks, and so you'll see distended neck veins and muffled heart sounds, yeah, and usually hypotension. This is not a good call to have, and if they're alive, get the out of there, right? Now, if they're, um, the good news is from a treatment perspective, whatever the cause of their hypotension, we basically give them fluids. You start an IV, you give a 20 cc per kilo bolus. If they have cardiac tamponade, a 20 cc per kilo bolus may be helpful. Uh, if they have, if they're bleeding, what, what, what was 20 cc's per kilo. Oh, no, no, what was the medication? Uh, oh, no, normal saline. normal saline. Yeah, intravenous normal saline, yeah. So we give them fluids, normal saline, um, a 20 cc per kilo bolus if they're hypotensive. And they're likely gonna be tachycardic. Uh, they may have a decreased BP in one arm. Uh, as many as 15% present with no pain, but have neurological deficits. 9% uh, of uh, type A present with acute stroke. So that's the ascending aorta type. 10% of patients have syncope. I love syncope. If you haven't figured that out, syncope is one of my favorite calls. It's mostly benign, but occasionally it's something really interesting, right? Pulmonary embolus can cause syncope. Cardiac tamponade can cause syncope. Heart blocks can cause syncope. Ventricular tachycardia can cause syncope. Supraventricular tachycardia can cause syncope. Um, Brugada syndrome, the list goes on and on and on, right? So, so you put your CSI lenses on and you try to figure out what the heck happened here. Uh, so management, uh, keep them comfortable. SpO2, O2, plus or minus. ECG, glucometry for any altered LOA. For anyone with an altered mental status, we always check blood sugar just to rule out hypoglycemia as the cause. And um, PPV, PRN, a transport, not a whole lot we can do. Um, the other thing I should add here is start an IV and give fluids for hypotension. Right. Now, the caveat here is this type of chest pain, tearing chest pain radiating right to the back, we don't give ASA or nitroglycerin. Um, but you have to be fairly certain that you're dealing with a thoracic aortic dissection. And if the patient tells you they have a thoracic aneurysm and they've got this kind of tearing chest pain, then you can be pretty certain this is not cardiac ischemia, but it's thoracic aortic dissection. Then you can withhold ASA. Because think about it this way. Um, if they've got thoracic aortic dissection, they're basically bleeding between you know, from the intima layer into the, between the intima and the media. And ASA promotes bleeding, right? It's an antiplatelet drug. Uh, nitroglycerin, um, again, we use nitroglycerin for cardiac ischemia, not for thoracic aortic dissection. But on the flip side, if you're dealing with a chest pain, 
and you're really not sure what it is, no one's going to criticize you for giving ASA a nitroglycerin, even, it even if it turns out to be a thoracic aortic dissection. ASA is not likely to kill them. Nitro is not likely to kill them, but those two drugs are not beneficial, and there's a slight potential for harm. Right. Um, so if you're pretty certain you're dealing with a thoracic aortic aneurysm or thoracic aortic dissection, we withhold those drugs. If you're really not sure, uh, just go ahead and give them. Does that make sense? It's one of the reasons why, you know, in terms of risk-benefit ratio, um, we look at drugs in terms of their potential benefit, in terms of the potential uh, risks. And so, um, you know, you have to weigh th this idea that even if you give the drug to the wrong condition, um, that it's not going to do harm or it's likely to do very little harm. So, think of it that way. Uh, now, if you were uncertain, but you thought, well, this is a tearing pain, it's not a typical cardiac ischemia pain, and you decide to withhold ASA and nitro, I don't think any base hospital would criticize you for that. In fact, under those circumstances, I would likely send an email to the base hospital saying, here's why I withheld um, ASA and nitro for this patient. And they look at your clinical rationale, and they go, that's fine with us, no problem. Yeah. So triple A's, abdominal aortic aneurysms. Etiology, atherosclerosis, hypertension, some other causes as well. Um, dilation with at least 50% increases, um, uh, uh, so it, an aneurysm would be a dilation of 50% over normal arterial diameter. We typically see it at the base of the aorta just before it bifurcates into the iliac arteries. Sometimes it can, uh, the aneurysms can extend into the iliac artery. And, um, so the worry is that this aneurysm will rupture or it'll dissect and rupture. And uh, so presentation typically is, um, they may have an asymptomatic pulsatile abdominal mass or they may have uh, abdomen or back pain with a pulsatile mass, usually around the umbilical area. And uh, may be severe, they may have groin pain, they may have syncope, there's syncope again. Uh, they may have paralysis, right? Because um, if they've got, um, uh, ischemia to the blood vessels that supply the the, uh, the spinal cord or the nerves coming off the spinal cord. Uh, they may have paralysis. Um, they may present with uh, a flank mass, so they may, you know, if it's bleeding, they may see some discolor discoloration around the abdomen. There may be nausea, vomiting, urinary symptoms, uh, decreased or absent pulses. So imagine you've got this um, aneurysm in the base of your aorta, aorta, maybe it's dissecting into the iliac arteries, that's going to diminish blood flow to the leg. So we check for pedal pulses on both feet. We check for color and cap refill on both feet to see if there's a difference. Right. Um, again, it's, you know, we're looking for uh, cumulative evidence. Right. So, you know, you get someone who presents with abdo pain that they describe as tearing. And immediately you think, well, this could be a number of things. Uh, could be a AAA, uh, could be renal colic, could be a diverticulitis, could be a number of different things. Um, if it's constant, that usually reduces the likelihood that it's peristaltic, that it's something to do with the gastrointestinal tract, right? Intermittent tends to be GI, right? 
tends to be peristaltic, but constant tends to be more of a serious concern. Um, and whenever it comes to abdominal pain, constant, um, severe, and sudden, when you get this, that's life threat until proven otherwise. Sudden, severe, constant, that should make you worried. Yeah. Gradual, intermittent, comes and goes, we worry a little bit less about, but sudden, constant, severe, it's easy to remember. We think of vascular catastrophes. Isn't that a great term, vascular catastrophes? What'd you do today? I had a vascular catastrophe. An exploding AAA. It was amazing. We had, uh, did I tell you the story about my AAA? Uh, that we flew to Toronto? Okay, I'll tell you the story quickly. So we, uh, I was working at Air Ambulance, we picked up this guy at a peripheral hospital. He had a, um, they did an ultrasound. They knew he had an abdominal aortic aneurysm and it was a big one. And um, we, uh, he was hemodynamically stable. His blood pressure was good, his heart rate was good. We were just giving him some pain medication, trying to make him comfortable. But this is a ticking time bomb, right? Thoracic aortic aneurysm, abdominal aortic aneurysm, it's a ticking time bomb. They sneeze, they fart, they cough. You worry the thing's gonna explode on you. And that's exactly what happened to this guy. We flew him to Toronto, we landed on Sick Kids Hospital. We got in the elevator and he sneezed. And then he went pale. Uh, and he went tachycardic, and we knew he ruptured or partially ruptured his abdominal aorta. So normally from sick heads, we go down to the basement and through the tunnels across the Toronto General. We just ran across with him on the stretcher, Gerard Street, which is dangerous because you got cab drivers all over the place there. And uh, we took him into the eMERGE. We said, we think he ruptured his, his aorta, and they said, let's go straight to the OR. So the doc, uh, an eMERGE doc and a nurse accompanying us. We took straight to the OR and we moved him from our stretcher onto the operating table. The doc, the ER doc said to one of the nurses, call the OR, tell them we're coming right now that his AAA is ruptured. So <clears throat> he was losing consciousness. We got him to the operating table and before we even got our blankets back onto our stretcher and the straps on, they anesthetized him and they cut him open and they clamped his aorta. It was amazing. Like we were not even, we had just moved the stretcher maybe four feet from the operating table and they had already opened him up and clamped his aorta. Um, and he survived, which was amazing, truly amazing. I thought for sure he was a dead guy. Wait a minute, he was losing consciousness, so obviously they put him in a little bit of Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, don't worry, yeah. Well, no, because you said he was losing consciousness and the next thing. Yeah, he was losing consciousness because he was exsanguinating. He was, he was hemorrhaging, right, in his, in his abdomen. Um, and I've, um, I've seen the surgery for this stuff. I'll tell you about it in a second. So it's a ticking time bomb. Uh, so even if their vital signs are normal, uh, you got to move fast. You can't waste any time on scene, and you got to minimize the time of contact to the time of surgery, right? So your objective is to spend less than 10 minutes on the scene for someone like this. If uh, you've got someone sitting on the sofa with a suspected AAA, you probably got to get them on the stair chair and carry them out and do it quickly, right? Because the last thing you want to do is have them walk or fore and aft them and have them uh, go into cardiac arrest on you. So you probably want to get that stair chair and get them the heck out of there as fast as possible. So position comfort, move them slowly, 
SPO2, O2, when I say slowly, I mean get out of there fast, but you know, no sudden movements. Uh, ECD supportive care, that's really all there is. IV access and IV fluids if they need it, right? and transport. So um, they use, um, I'm not sure what kind of material they use now. Can you read this? I can't read it. No. Oh, I was trying to read here. I thought maybe it listed the material they use for that, but that's what it looks like. So I did another call for AAA um, in the eMERGE department and he ruptured and the, the ER doc asked my partner and I if we go into the OR with him because it, it was like a Sunday and there was no surgeon available and the ER doc had some surgical experience. And um, so we went into the OR with him and managed the fluid. So we were hanging blood and running the blood and, and uh, the doc cut him open and he had shred about um, 12 inches of his aorta and there was no way they could repair it. So he just, like, when he opened him up, the blood just boom, poured out. Oh. Yeah, and he uh, went into cardiac arrest at that point. And they, um, the doc suctioned all, you know, as much of the blood out as he could and took a look at the aorta and it was just shredded, completely shredded. Mm -hmm. And there's no way he could manage that in a peripheral hospital. So, interesting. Okay, that's it for aneurysms. But Any he wouldn't be held like, liable for any damages on that because he tried, right? Yeah, I mean, the guy was going to die without it. Uh, I think, I'm trying to remember now. Um, I can't remember if he was in cardiac arrest by the time we took him to the OR or he was pre-arrest. He might have been pre-arrest. He had, might have had a pressure like 40 systolic or something and uh, was going into cardiac arrest. There was no way he was going to survive the flight. This I knew my partner knew, you know. He was going to exsanguinate on us, so better to exsanguinate here in the hospital than with us. That's what's my my attitude. <laughs> <laughs>